So here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is continuing. We're continuing to read this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus. And in the first chapter, Paul goes back to before the creation and said before the creation, before the material universe was created, before there was a human being, before there were angels, before there were demons, before there was humanity, before there were sun and moon and stars and planets, before any material creation, God had a plan and God had a purpose in himself. And God knew that he would choose for himself and choose in himself a people. And so God did that, the Bible teaches us, according to the good pleasure of his will, according to his plan and purpose. Not because he saw something good in us, because there is nothing good in us. The Bible is very plain, very clear about that. And so Paul begins this letter by taking us back and showing us that our identity and whatever we have, we have it in Christ. And we don't have anything apart from Christ. And then he starts there in this place before the creation and he brings us to this picture of who Christ is. Let's begin reading before we begin in chapter 2. Let's Let's pick up the end of chapter 1. And remember, Paul is praying. Let's begin reading in chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of the calling, the hope of His calling, what are the riches of, of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power. Do you see that, church? It's His calling. It's His inheritance. It's His power that works toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, gave Christ to be head over all things to the church the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, open our hearts and open our minds today to this good news, to this gospel message. Let it change us. Let it transform us. Let it renew our minds. Let it be the truth that sets us free from the bondage of sin and death, from the old mindsets of our carnal mind and our carnal nature. Reveal Christ to us by your Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would be a people that would bring glory and honor to your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to attempt to go through the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So let's go back up to verse 1. So I wanted to read, uh, starting there with Paul's praying for the believers, so you kind of get the context that Paul is telling them this is God's plan, this is God's purpose. He chose you in Christ. And in choosing you in Christ, he says, this is my prayer that you would, as believers, as those who are trusting, as those who are chosen and elect in Christ Jesus, that you would begin to see and know and comprehend and understand and experience the fullness of what God has done for you and in you in Christ Jesus. And then he takes he takes the people of God, he takes these believers from this place before creation when there's just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and no material world. And he brings them to this place where now we are, we are the body of Christ. We are the fullness of Christ. Christ is the head over his body, who is the church. And Paul calls the church the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he talked about this where God made us alive. He made us accepted. He chose us in him. And then we get to verse 1 here, and he says, And you... You who are the church, you who are his body, you who are the fullness of him who fills all in all, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You who were dead he made alive. Now I want you to think about that, church. You he made alive who were dead. You were dead, he made you alive. What can a dead man do? But he can't smell himself. 
A dead man can stink. That's all he can do. A dead man is dead. And some people say, well, Paul is not really meaning dead. He means really sick. No, didn't say, and you who were really sick, he said you were dead and he made you alive. It didn't even say you were sick and he made you well. It says you were dead and he made you alive. Guess what Lazarus couldn't do until Jesus called him out of the tomb? He couldn't come out of the tomb. He was dead. For four days he was dead, and guess what? He couldn't come out of death until Jesus called him from death to life. Why do you think Jesus did that miracle? Jesus did that miracle to show us our true condition. This is what Paul is saying here. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Don't underestimate the power of death to hold us and to keep us in bondage. A dead man can do nothing for himself. He can't make himself alive. He can't do anything. We are held in bondage to death. And what brought death? Sin brought death. And when we entered into sin, we died. And we are held in bondage to sin and to death. We are in ourselves completely hopeless and helpless in death until Christ makes us alive. Paul describes this condition in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Hold your place there in Ephesians and let's go over here and let's read Romans because we need to see what the Scripture says about us. Now, you and I might have opinions about who we are, and you and I might have a, an opinion about our condition, and we might think, well, this is my condition, or I might think this is your condition, or this is this person's condition. But we can't rest on our opinions because you guys know what opinions are like. Everybody's got one, right? And most of the time, they're all different. So we don't live based on our opinion. We live based on the truth. And we don't let our opinion dictate what is true. We go to the truth. We go to the Scripture, and we let the Scripture inform us as to what is true, and then we formulate our belief based on the truth, not based on what I want the truth to be. You guys know the difference? We, we oftentimes want the truth to be something that it's not. And we can live in this denial with this illusion that the truth is one thing when in reality it's not. So let's go to the truth of the Scripture and let the truth formulate what we are going to believe. Paul writes this. He's quoting the Old Testament Scripture. And he writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Y'all know the definition of none, right? None is none. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. That is the graphic picture of a dead man, of a man dead in sin, of who we are dead in our sin. Paul said that was your condition when God made you alive, when he raised you from the dead. We were dead in trespass and sin. So read the verse with me. And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sin. The Bible calls us children of disobedience. Sin changed man from light to darkness. Remember, man was created in the image of God. We still bear the fingerprint of God. We still bear that image. But when Adam and Eve entered into sin, they fell from light into darkness. So sin doesn't define our behavior. Sin defines our nature. And what separates us from God is not simply our behavior. What separates us from God is our very nature, who and what we are because of sin and death. We are dead in trespasses and sin. Now we are darkness, but God is light. Christ in, God, in John's gospel is called the light that came into the world. Christ is the light. We are called darkness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul asks this question, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Well, the answer is it doesn't have any fellowship with, light, with darkness. So if we turned all the lights in here, it would be dark. The moment we turn the lights on, guess what? The darkness flees. Darkness and light don't mix. Light and darkness have no fellowship with one another. We were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. We went from being darkness to light when God raised us from the dead and made us alive in Christ. And what communion, Paul asked this question, what communion has light with darkness? What fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? So we see that darkness and lawlessness are related, but light and righteousness are related. And we can't have fellowship and communion with God until we are changed and transformed to the to the very depth of our being. So it's, we don't preach a message of behavior modification. If, if, if you would just behave better, you would be closer to God. If you just behave better, God would love you more. If you'd behave better, God would save you. No. You can't behave good enough to merit God's salvation. That's a myth. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's why Satan wanted Adam and Eve to eat from the tree to begin with. So that with the knowledge of good and evil, they would have this deception in their mind that they can be good enough. They can manage the good and manage the evil. If I can manage my evil well enough, then I'll be good enough for God. And the better I am at managing evil, the more acceptable I become to God. 
So we live this life, whether we realize it or not, whether we've ever read our Bible, whether we ever know anything about theology or the study of God, we live our life thinking inherently, this is the sin nature, that if I'm good enough, I'm going to be accepted. But if I'm too bad, I'm going to be rejected. So what do we do? We, we try to be good enough. Now, we have whacked out ways of believing that, and we have perverted ways of how we might try to do that, but basically that's what happens. Because we ate the wrong fruit, because we bought the lie. And we grow up thinking that if we can just manage our evil well enough, then we'll be accepted to God. No. What did Paul write in the first chapter here? That he has, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Christ makes us accepted. We don't make ourselves acceptable. And so we're dead. We're darkness. We are separated from God. We are other than God. God is other than us. We can't have fellowship and communion with God until we are changed and transformed, until we go from death to life or darkness to light. We are dead. We are darkness. We are children of disobedience. We must become life and light in the Lord. We must become children of light. And when we become children of light, it stands to reason that we will walk as children of light. But we, in and of ourselves, cannot do that. I can't make myself a child of light. I can't make myself go from darkness to light. I can't raise myself from the dead. Only God can do that. Only God, in his grace, can and will change us. And this is the promise. You cry out, you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's Peter quoting the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. That if you call upon the name of the Lord, God will save you. This is what Jesus declared. God sent his son into the world that whoever would believe, whosoever would believe in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. If you're wondering whether you should trust in Jesus, let me just tell you, you should trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Call upon his name. Now hear the scandalous and amazing grace that's declared in this verse. This is the scandal of grace. This is what got Paul in trouble with the Jews. Because what the Jews mistakenly heard was that Paul was saying, hey, you guys can live any way you want. Go be as immoral as you want. Don't worry about keeping the law. Don't worry about being holy and righteous. In fact, the more you sin, the more God's going to be glorified because the more it's going to magnify his grace. That's what Paul was accused of preaching, but that's not what Paul was preaching. This is what he addresses in Romans chapter 6 when he says, should we go out and sin all the more so that grace would abound even more? Certainly not. God forbid. Because if we have been born again of Jesus Christ, then what should be the fruit of our life? It should be the fruit of the life of Jesus Christ. What kind of life did Jesus live? Did he live a sinful life to magnify the grace of God? No, he lived a sinless life. He was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, full of love and grace and truth. So if that's who Jesus is, and we've been born again according to the life of Jesus, 
then what should be the fruit of our life? Should the fruit of our life look like the fruit of Jesus' life? Yes. This is why when you plant apple seeds, you don't get lemons. You get apples. And when the seed of the gospel, when the seed of God's word has been planted in the good ground of our heart, when that begins to grow and manifest through our life, What's it going to look like and what's it going to taste like? It should look like and taste like the life of Christ. So that grace is not an excuse for us to live in sin and expect that we're entitled to God's forgiveness because we are not entitled to God's forgiveness. And if we willfully, rebelliously choose to live in sin, then we will suffer the consequences of that sin either as children of a good father who will not allow his children to go uncorrected, or as sons and daughters of disobedience who will one day experience the wrath of God. I hope it's not the latter. So listen to this scandalous and amazing grace that Paul is declaring in this verse. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespass and sin. From the utter darkness. That that is an amazing statement. Because here's the reality. From the utter darkness and deafening silence of death. While you were still in your sin. While you did not understand. While you did not seek God. While there was no good in you. When there was no fear of God before your eyes. God made you alive. Now that's not what I said. That's what the Bible says. Do you see that church? Do you see how amazing God's grace is? Do you see that you have nothing to boast in except Christ and what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for me? And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In which you once walked, you once walked in what? In trespass and sins. But now, since Christ has made you alive, you no longer walk according to the course of this world in which you once walked according to the course of this world. You once walked according to that course. You once walked in sin and death, but now Christ has made you alive, and you no longer walk according to the course of this world. Now, if we have been made alive in Christ, then how should we walk? What should we walk according to? We should walk according to Christ and the Spirit. Because that's how we went from death to life. So we once walked according to the course of this world. We once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That's the devil. That's what the Bible called the ruler of this world. 
We don't walk according to the world. We don't walk according to the course of the world. We don't walk according to the prince of the power of the air. When we were dead in trespass and sin, we walked that way because that was the only way we could walk. Do you realize that? When you were dead in sin, you didn't have a choice as to how you were going to walk. Most people today think they do, but they don't. When you're dead in sin, you have no choice but to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Because when you're dead, you're not laying in your grave thinking, I wonder if I want to be alive today or whether I want to be dead today. No, you're just dead. And you're in death. Period. Until someone comes and takes you out of death and puts you in life. And when we're in death, this is how we walk. Whether we realize it or not. We walk according to the course of this world. We walk according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, because we have this mistaken belief that we can be saved by our good works, we think, well, if we walk in good works, then we must be doing good, right? Except that the Bible says through the prophet Isaiah that your good works are like dirty, rotten, stinking, filthy, unclean rags in the sight of God. So God says, I don't recognize your good works because you are just a stinking dead man. You're dead in the grave and there's nothing good there. That goodness is just an illusion in your dead mind. And you're not going to be saved by the illusion of goodness. You can only be saved by the good work of the Son of God. So when we're dead in sin, this is the only way that we can walk. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We can walk according to no other way, but according to the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience when we are sons of disobedience, when we are children of disobedience, when we're dead in sin. That's the only thing that's working in us is death. For the spirit that works in all who are the sons of disobedience, all who remain in death is the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. This is the spirit that now works, Paul says, in the sons of disobedience. So all people are walking either according to the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, or they're walking according to the Spirit of God in Christ. Or we could say it like this. God recognizes only two types of people, those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Those who are in life and those who are in death. Those who are children of disobedience or those who are children of God. One is by birth, a child of disobedience, and one is by new birth, a child of God. Which are you? We are all by birth children of disobedience. But when we enter into a new birth, we become children of God. Are you trusting in Jesus? You can only do that in a new birth. 
Which birth are you walking in, the first or the second? Are you walking in the flesh or are you walking in the spirit? Are you walking in the old creation or are you walking in a new creation? Are you walking in light or are you walking in darkness? If you are walking in light, if you are a child of light, then walk as children of light. Verse 3. You see, I'm not going to get to verse. I'm not going to finish this today. But it's okay because this is so important. Now look at this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of, the, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now, Paul doesn't exclude himself. So Paul is writing to this Gentile church. Here is this Jew of Jews writing to these Gentiles. And he's not from a position of being God's chosen people pointing a finger at you Gentiles. Paul now says, look, we all once conducted ourselves, Jews included, Because the point of the gospel, the point of the good news is that God's salvation is for everyone. It's for the world. It's for Jew and Gentile. It's not just for Jews. It's for Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, as a Jew, I can say that I also, we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is the condition of all humanity while it is in bondage to sin and death, before we are made alive by God. And while in death we conducted ourselves, we walked according to, we lived in the lust of our flesh. We fulfilled the desires of our flesh and the desires of our mind. Not a renewed mind, but an unrenewed mind, a carnal mind, a sinful mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Apart from our resurrection from the dead, apart from the new birth in Christ, we are by nature just as the others. We are children of wrath. So the point of separation, what's separating me from God is my nature. We are by nature children of wrath, and God can have no fellowship, no communion with us until we, by nature, have been changed. Did you guys fill out that survey before you were born that asked what you wanted to be, what color hair you wanted, how tall you wanted to be? how short you wanted to be, whether you wanted to be a human, whether you wanted to be a dog, whether you wanted to be a cat, whether you wanted to be a fish or a bird. Did you guys, you all remember filling that survey out? Yeah, I bet you do. You missed it. Yeah. Do you think the Bible uses these pictures and this language by accident? Do you think God created the world the way he did just by chance? Do you think there's a reason why you had nothing to do with your birth 
and, and, and how you were born and where you were born? Do you think that, that God is taking all of his creation and showing us and teaching us something that he is absolutely Lord over everything? And if you don't think that he is, then he is absolutely Lord over nothing. You realize this, church? If Jesus is not Lord over everything, then he is Lord over nothing. If there's one, if there's one millisecond of his created order that's outside of his control and authority, then he is not Lord of all. And this is what the Bible declares him to be. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. He is Lord over all. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Now, the way a lot of us live, and I'm number one guilty of this, is that we oftentimes live believing both of those are true. So when everything's going the way I want it to go, I believe he's Lord over everything. When things don't go the way I want them to go, then I'm wondering, well, what, what happened here? Oh, man, you know, uh, did God fall asleep? No, he doesn't fall asleep. Did he have a lapse in judgment for, their, for a moment? Well, if he had a lapse in judgment even for a moment, he's not God, and he's certainly not Lord. So we begin to see this picture that Paul is painting to the believers And these believers, by the way, were experiencing intense persecution. And these believers who were experiencing intense persecution were probably wondering what has happened. God, do you know what's going on here? Do you know what's happening to us? And when Paul writes his letter, he writes beginning before time. And he says, in case you guys might be wondering whether God has forgotten about you or God has turned his back on you or God has been busy over here doing something else. And well, I can't bring my prayer to God because he's got so many other things he's busy with doing as if God's not big enough to deal with your prayer or my prayer. As if the world is too big for God and so I can't bother God because he's way too busy with more important things? Come on, people. Either he's Lord of all or he's Lord of nothing. Either he's big enough to handle everything or he's not big enough to handle anything. And the Bible paints one picture of who God is. He is the God who is big enough. That's not, that's really shouldn't even use that term because... God is beyond big. But he is big enough to handle everything. And Paul starts and he says, look, just in case you are wondering, before the created order, before there was a human being on earth, well, before there was an earth to be persecuted on, before there was anyone to persecute you, God knew you, God chose you in him. We're going to see later on next week as we continue through this chapter That God created you in Christ. He formed you in Christ. He created good works for you. He knew your beginning. He knows your end. He knows everything in between. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens apart from him. He is Lord over all. And if we're tempted to not believe that, we need to go back and we need to read this again and see what the Bible is declaring about God. And if you don't believe that can be true, then you better pray and you better ask God to give you the gift of faith 
to believe him and to trust him. Because this is what he is declaring about himself. And it is the height of arrogance for humanity to think that that we are somehow masters of our own destiny. That we are somehow co-pilots with God as we're all flying this thing together. No, we're not. We're not. When we think the nation's out of control, when we think things have, have, have just flown out of control, and we become fearful and we say, what's going to happen? Our nation's disintegrating. Our, our rights are being taken away. What, what's going to happen? What if they come to persecute us? What if they do? It won't be the first time. We're reading a letter written to a church that was persecuted for their faith People died because of their faith in Jesus. Why do we think that? Why do we think that's strange? It's not strange. It's only strange to us because we've grown up now for a couple of generations at least not really hearing the gospel preached. We hear a health, wealth, and prosperity. We call it gospel, but it's not gospel. It's everything's good and everything's lovely and just, Don't pay attention to the bad stuff. If you just believe all the good stuff, hard enough and long enough, all the bad stuff will just disappear. That's not the gospel. Church, are you hearing me? That's not the gospel. That's not what Paul is writing to the church. That's not what the Holy Spirit inspired for us today. What's happening around us is really happening And guess what? God is allowing it to happen. God is allowing our nation to go to hell. I'm just going to say that. Because if you don't think it's becoming pretty hellish, it's it's, it's getting pretty hellish. But how do we define that? We say, oh man, you know, inflation is, things are more expensive and taxes are high and you know, they're infringing on, they make me pay $47 to go fish. And those are my fish, because this is my government. This is my land. It's not your land, it's my land. No. God is God. Jesus is Lord. We have turned our backs on him as a nation. I don't know how many people were killed in the shooting, but here's what I do know. Every day, here's what it averages out to. Every day, 3,000 Americans are murdered. That's been happening since 1973. Every single day day since 1973, since January 23rd of 1973, on average, 3 million Americans have been murdered every day. Did you know that? Most people don't know that. We read about 3,000 plus people dying on September 11th, 2001, and we lost our collective minds And I'm not saying we shouldn't have. But for 
But for every day, decades before that, and every day, decades since, over 3,000 Americans are murdered every day. We just, we just put a name on it. We call it abortion. Do you think God is not going to judge a nation that not only tolerates that, but has made it legal? And has, for decades now in our government, encouraged it, pays for it, and encourages women to murder their babies? You think God's not going to judge a nation? You think God's not going to judge a nation who takes the most intimate relationship that God created between a man and a woman called marriage? Now here's what... Here's what, y'all got me preaching now. Here's, here's, here's our self-righteous, you know, we're self-righteous Christians. Well, we've pushed it too far now when we're going to say that two men can get married or two women can get married. But yet we just wink at adultery. We, we don't think it's any big deal when men are cheating on their wives or wives are cheating on their husbands. Our boys and girls are fornicating all over the place. I do marriage counseling, and nine out of ten couples that come to me, come to me, they're already living together, already having sex together, already living just like they're married. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Sin, S-I-N. You know how long we've tolerated that? You know now we just say that's natural, it's to be expected. We hand out... uh, condoms in school we hand out birth control in school we teach kids how to have sex properly starting now in kindergarten it's culturally accepted no big deal but now the church all of a sudden all up in arms because we got homosexual marriage same-sex marriage where was the church when all this other stuff was taking place where were parents? Where, where, where were we? Do you hear what I'm saying, church? What's, what we're beginning to now understand that's really happening is it didn't just happen. It didn't just happen last night. It's been happening for decades, for generations. And the church has been silent, and all we want to do is write books about how to have your best life yet or how to be most successful or how to be happier, how to have more peace. I just want to come to church, Pastor, and I can almost quote it verbatim. I just want to come to church, Pastor, and feel good about myself. John the Baptist didn't say, look, all come to me and let me make you feel better about yourselves. Come on out here, let me dunk you in the river, and I just want you guys to feel better about yourselves. He says, no, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the gospel message today in America. Take heart, you can have your best life yet. We don't talk about sin. You know one reason there's not more people here? I firmly believe because people don't like to go to churches that talk about sin. I'm talking about boys and girls fornicating. I'm talking about homosexual sin. I'm talking about 
uh, married men and women adultery. I'm talking about things that are uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable. And we don't like to talk about uncomfortable things in our nation. So we just, we just kind of gloss over them. Here's the thing. God doesn't gloss over uncomfortable things. Here's the good news. We are all sinners, every one of us. I don't care whether you've ever fornicated or committed adultery. You've done it, whether, whether you've done it physically or in your mind. We're all guilty before God. We're all sinners. No one can point a finger at somebody else and say, you're a worse sinner than I am, because we are all condemned under sin. Every one of us. Don't you dare point a finger at someone and say, well, they did that or they... No, because we're all guilty of sin. But here's the good news. God sent his son to deal with the sin that we can't deal with. God sent his son to do what we could not do to save us out of our sin. God sent his son to raise us from the dead, to raise us out of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of light of his son. That's the good news. God didn't gloss over sin. God poured the wrath, his wrath, the fullness of his wrath upon his son on the cross to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world and not one drop of the Savior's blood was wasted. So that those who are going to go to hell are going to go to hell justly and God will justly pour out his wrath upon them in hell. And those that will spend eternity in his presence in salvation are there justly because God poured his wrath upon his son who took our wrath for us. You see, God did not wink at sin. God didn't just let sin pass by and say, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't see that. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to do as a nation. We want to put our stamp of approval on anything and everything as long as it's politically correct. You can persecute Christians, but you can't persecute other religions. You can say bad things about Christianity and Jesus, but don't dare say anything bad about Islam and Muhammad. Why is that? Because the people making our laws and the people running our country are running it according to the course of this world. They're dead men, ruling and reigning from death. And they're making their decisions from death. They don't know any better. That's why as believers, you don't put your hope in a big R or a big D or her or him or it or whoever is in the White House. That's not where our hope is. You've been given the right to vote, so vote wisely. You might say it's not even worth voting. Listen, we're not going to vote ourselves out of this mess. But we better start praying. And we better start living the gospel.
And we better stop pretending that God's okay with some things, but not okay with other things. And we better start reading our Bibles and begin to pray and ask God to give us an understanding of what transpired at the cross, not only in saving us, but that God poured his wrath out on his son because sin is that abominable to him. And if sin is so much of an abomination that he would pour his wrath out on his only son, why would we think that we can continue living in sin and it's okay? It's not. Unless we just want to make a mockery of Jesus. And we've done a pretty good job of that in our nation. But somebody, and it can't just be the pastor standing behind pulpits, somebody who professes faith in Jesus has got to have the courage to stand up and speak the truth and to speak it in love. So when my little grandbabies were playing at the beach and they were floundering in the water, it looked like they were fixing to drown. I didn't just say, well, I don't want to ruin their fun over there, you know. Just let them flounder in the water, you know. Uh, EJ snatched them up out of the water because she didn't want her baby to drown. Why? Because we love our children. Playing in the water is a lot of fun, but when you drown, that's not good. Playing with sin can be a lot of fun, but the Bible says the end thereof is death. And if we love our children, if we love our neighbors, if we love our friends and our family, we won't let them just play in sin and and be worried about whether we're going to hurt their feelings or not if we call them out on it. Don't call them out in anger. Don't call them out in bitterness. Call them out in love and say, do you not understand that the end thereof is death? I love you. I'm not going to let you drown in this ocean, and I'm not going to let you drown in sin because I love you. We ought to at least have the love of Jesus that would compel us to do that. And if you don't know what sin is, start reading your Bible. If you don't know what God's will is, start reading your Bible. Don't trust your opinion God forbid, don't trust the TV and the news shows and the entertainment shows that we all love to watch. Well, I don't. The vast majority of Americans get their news from entertainment shows. Get informed from this right here. Turn the TV off and start reading your Bible. Stop reading the newspaper and start reading your Bible. If you would just determine that you're going to read your Bible as much, if not more, than you read a newspaper or anything else, you would do yourself a real favor. And let this book shape what you believe. Don't let what you're mama or your daddy or your grandma or your pastor at Christ Fellowship or anybody else shape what you believe. Go to this Bible first and foremost and then see if your pastor is telling you the truth. 
See if grandma or grandpa or Uncle Billy Bob told you the truth, or maybe they didn't know the truth. But don't just take things at face value because it's a convenient truth for you to believe. Go to the scripture and search it out and find out and let this book right here shape your beliefs. If you do that, you're going to come across some things that are very uncomfortable for you. But the question is, are you going to believe God? Are you going to live in an illusion? Stop living in an illusion. America has lived in it long enough. And you know what God says? It's ending now. I'm not going to let you live in denial. I'm not going to let you live in deception. In this illusion, I'm going to make the truth so graphic for you, it's going to scare you. And it should if our hope is not in Jesus. What's happening should scare us if we don't have any hope in Jesus. But if you have hope in Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, then what's happening should not scare you. It should excite you because it shows you and it proves to you that God is working and God is moving. And we're not going to be the first ones that will have ever experienced hardship in Jesus. In fact, God may give us the honor and the privilege to be named among their company. And if he does, praise the Lord. This is what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He's trying to help them understand who they are and who is their Lord and who really is in control. Not the people persecuting them, not the people who challenges them, but there is a God in heaven who is Lord, who is in control. You belong to him if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now the question is, have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? 